All right, welcome everybody to Crossroads Church this morning. Good to see you on this uh, glorious day. What a beautiful day it is. Really happy to be with you today. want to welcome those of you that are at our uh, Fort Lupton campus and those of you that are watching online. We are really grateful that you're here today. My name is Pastor Kim. I am the director of the residency program here at this amazing church, and I'm so honored to be with you today. So welcome and happy Father's Day to all y'all that that applies to. Just want to make sure that it gets in there. Happy Father's Day. I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Shout out to all the dads. Being a dad, is it not one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences in life? My wife and I, we have six kids. They're all adults now, and one of the greatest and most wonderful things about that is none of them live with us anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an awesome experience. Uh, so a year ago on Father's Day, interesting day for me, um, the 21st of June, 2020, uh, my wife and I had to go that day to pl make plans to go to Dallas to visit her mom, who had just been in a pretty serious car wreck. And as, uh, as, as usual, I went over to my mom and dad's house to wish my dad a happy Father's Day early that morning and uh, give him a card and a hug and a kiss and just wish him well because I wasn't going to see him the rest of the day. And uh, he was so excited. He had just broken his hip after falling down. He's 90 years old. He fell down, broke his hip, and he had surgery uh, just a few weeks earlier. And he was working really hard at rehabbing and getting uh, strong again because he is a bike rider, which I love. And he loves it that I have a little and operate a little uh, bike shop, nonprofit shop. And he's a trike rider, actually. He rides a three-wheel adult trike. And he couldn't wait to get back on that thing because he'd ride it a few miles every day. And so so when I went over there, June 21st last year, uh, he, sh he, he was so excited to show me. He got on his stationary bike in, in their sunroom, and he showed me. I have a photo of it. I, I snapped this photo of my dad on his bike. He's so happy to be on that, on that bike. And that was the last photo I ever took of my dad alive. That afternoon, he contracted covid this man, who's the strongest man on earth, he survived a plane wreck, he survived cancer, he survived a nicotine addiction, he survived uh, many, a kidney operation, he survived a lot, and a little microscopic virus found its way into his respiratory system. And uh, within a week, he was in uh, the emergency room at the VA hospital, and... Uh, a week after that, on July 4th, we had gotten home from Texas. My uh, siblings and I and our, my brother, my sister, and our spouses, along with our mom, said goodbye to my dad over FaceTime, thanks to the good workers at the VA hospital, and that's how we saw our dad die. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite theologians. He died in 1936. He said this, the surest way to love anything is to remember that at any moment it might be lost. I just want to encourage you, if you can, call or hug your dad today. My dad taught me a lot. Your dad taught you a lot. I don't know what you think about when you think about your dad, but dads teach kids stuff, right? And my dad taught me two things that rise to the surface. He taught me a lot, but he taught me two things that rise to the surface, even to this day. He taught me, number one, to work hard. He taught me how to work hard. He was a strong, hard worker. In fact, the model verse in my home was in, out of the Bible it was Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Do your work, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, uh, not as for men, because the Lord you're serving. And I just lived with that verse. 
Today I try and work hard because my parents, particularly my dad, demonstrated that to me. And then the second thing he taught me was this great humility. He was such a humble man. He would do anything for anybody. He gave his life for other people. He would give you the shirt off his back. Just a really humble man, which is why today I'm such a tower of humility. (laughs) We're in the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at season four, uh, part five. Jesus is a rabbi. He's teaching. He's about ready to go to the cross. And uh, Luke, we're taking in these sections over these months and years, and we're looking through, going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at Jesus and his teaching, because our real goal here is to get you connected to Jesus. Our number one uh, core value at Crossroads Church is we, uh, everything is about Jesus. We're all about Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus is all about humility. And in this text, I'm going to read about seven verses. In this text, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is teaching us an important lesson about humility and how to live and what humility ultimately means to us. So Luke chapter 14, if you have a Bible on your phone or you have a Bible, you want to look on the screen. Here's verse 7 of Luke 14 and following. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how those to this banquet they were at. And he noticed how they chose places of honor And he said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, instead, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the man who had invited him, the man, the host of the dinner, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid." But instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So many of Jesus' conversations, I don't know if if you've noticed this, happen around food, around a meal. In fact, there are 10 meals that we can count in the Gospel of Luke alone where Jesus is eating a meal and using that opportunity for teaching. We do that today. That sometimes happens in our homes. But difficult truths will sometimes come out of Jesus' mouth around a meal. Such is true in this text. It's the Sabbath day, the holiest day of the week, the day of rest, the holy day of rest. And a leader of the Pharisee is throwing a party, a feast. And at this feast, Jesus is invited, which is curious because the Pharisees were the group of people, the religious Jews, who were kind of looking to Jesus to get rid of him eventually. But they still, the jury's out at this point, and Jesus has become, his notoriety has become something they cannot ignore. So this man invites Jesus to this feast at this Pharisee's house. It's a big party, a lot of invited guests, a very prominent home. The Pharisees were always wealthy, chief priests, Pharisees. And Jesus is watching the guests, how they all clamor for a place of honor right next to the host. And he, and he tells them what I just read to you. Look, if you're going to go to a party, don't sit at the, at the head. Don't, don't find the best place. Instead, because then somebody else is going to come who's more important to you, and you're going to make the walk of shame down to the lowest place at the table. Instead, take a low place, and you'll be invited to the higher place. 
A little background here would help us. This is in uh, first century Jerusalem, first century Israel, where the patronage system was deep in play. And we're familiar with it, maybe not that term, but it works like this. In every community, there were rich and prominent people who became rich and prominent because of others around them. They would invite people who were like them to dinner parties, and the patronage system worked like this. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Or there are contacts to be made and people and, and, and relationships to be built. When you invite somebody to a dinner party or to a coffee, and leads were made, you could find new customers, people to sell things to, money uh, was to be made, favors. Uh, not too unlike a group of uh, people that I belonged to for a number of years, a great organization called the Rotary. Well, it was the business leaders in the, or in, in the community, still is. Rotary is a great worldwide organization. In fact, they single-handedly almost are eradicating polio around the world through vaccination. Rotary's a great club, and I noticed that what, what we do at Rotary is we kind of listen to each other and kind of bounce off each other and learn from each other, but we also find ways to improve our status in the community and in our business, and it was a way to help. certainly happens in other organizations. It happens in politics. It happens in a lot of different contexts. We're not unfamiliar with the patronage system. Well, these religious people have influence and wealth and were moving up the ladder of success. They were networking with each other, and this dinner party was that kind of event for that to take place. The host would spend lots of shekels, lots of money to make a party like this happen, but it didn't matter because he would make that money back in the contacts and networking that he would ultimately get out of the dinner party or out of the festivity. Jesus knows all this is going on. It's part of his culture. And he uses the opportunity to establish two important, challenging truths. Truths about how he is reordering how people who follow him behave and live their life and respond and relate to the people in their life. And he does this by shocking everybody when he has the audacity to say two things. First, when you're invited to a dinner party, don't clamor for the place of honor to get next to the host, the best seat. Instead, sit at the back and let the host invite you to come up to the head table. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But secondly, when you he says, when you throw a dinner party, don't do what you're doing. He tells this to the host in the hearing of everybody. He says, look, when you, when you throw a dinner party, don't invite the people you're inviting, your family, your friends, people of influence. Don't invite people who repay you. Now, this is what everybody was doing, and Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, invite the people who would and could never repay you. And so we say, well, what's going on here? Well, first, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted has anyone ever told you that? Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. You know, that, you know that person, we all know these people who, Jesus is basically saying, don't be the kind of person who toots their own horn, who blows their own horn, or who makes big of themselves. The irony is, the reality is, if you're a self-promoter, if you're the kind of person who promotes yourself, if you're always pushing yourself Look how good I am. Look what I know. Look what I can do. I know how to make this happen. I'm the person you need. Basically, the people who most promote themselves are the ones who often don't get promoted because everybody resents them ultimately. Nobody likes that kind of person around them, typically. This is just so practical. Jesus is saying, let modesty be the quality and standard of your life and how 
and how you live it. Let your modesty and the quality of your life speak for you. Don't speak it yourself. Then let others see it and let them speak of you to others. Don't blow your own horn. Don't blow your own horn. Anyone know anybody who's exalting themselves all the time? It's annoying, isn't it? Don't be that guy, Jesus says. Why? Well, he's got a dual thing going on here. In this particular instance, Jesus, especially followers of Jesus, it's, it's, it's bigger because Jesus says in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself. And as he says that, the, the whole notion he's moving to is not just from practicality. It's just a good way to live, not blowing your own horn. But he's moving to the spiritual reality for this spiritual group, and he's making a point here we can all learn from. Jesus is including everyone in this statement, and because of his audience the religious elite, he's telling them and us this very thing. He's saying, by no means try to exalt yourself before God. Don't try to exalt yourself before God. If you go to God and you proclaim your goodness, your good works, your abilities, your value, and you say, I deserve acceptance, God. I deserve what you can give to me. If you go to God and toot your own horn, you're going to be rejected. Jesus is telling these people who have developed a system of tooting their own horn before God and before each other, don't do that. Because if you, if you, if, if you make big of yourself before God, you're going to be rejected. That's what Jesus is saying here. Why? Why would he say that? Why is self-promotion in front of God bad? Well, here's why. Because it shows we really don't understand our own hearts. We don't understand what's really going on in our own hearts. You think you do good deeds and achievements and worth, exalting to God, because somehow God will notice and show you favor. You're earning this, this right for God to, to pay attention to you, to give you favor, to give you salvation. When in reality, God is the one who gave you your abilities in the first place. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying, if you go to God and you say, I deserve rejection. I deserve rejection. Please forgive me then you'll get acceptance. He's turning the whole thing upside down because that's the way the gospel of Jesus works. Jesus is laying this on these religious people because they have invented this really skewed idea of God. They think God will accept them because they're good, because they're doing good things, because they've earned it, good lives, successful living. Some of them are thinking they deserve God's credit in their account. But it's the opposite that's true. God accepts us when we take the lower seat at the table, when we realize our own need for him, when we know we don't deserve a seat at the feast, we don't even deserve to be at the feast, he comes and extends an invite. He says, yes, you come, you deserve a seat at the feast because of my love for you. It's about grace. It's a gift. It's not about work. It's not my, about my ability. It's not about my success or my popularity or my wealth. It's about grace given to me, something I don't deserve and can't earn. In fact, these stories Jesus tells in front of these party goers at this moment just absolutely quiets the room. He has a reputation, and it's notorious. People t by the thousands are listening to Jesus. They all think networking and wealth are, and success are the thing that'll get each other's attention and God's attention. I have money, so I know I'm important. I have success, so I know I'm secure. Jesus is saying, if you don't have God at the center of your life, if money and success are at the center, if God isn't ruling your life, your life gravitating around the truth of God, then praise and awe of others will be your only reward. 
But if God is central to your being, to your identity, to your life, and you're rotating, you're gravitating your life around the lordship of Jesus, then you get his praise. He's not saying it's wrong to be bad or, or, or wrong or bad to be rich or successful, but don't you dare make that the center of your life. What does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And by the way, do you know how to tell if success and money are at the center of your life or if God is? It's the second thing Jesus is saying here in this, in this event of his life around a meal. The second thing Jesus says here, verses 7 through 24, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends and your networks. Invite people who would never be allowed to be at a party like this. Invite those people, people without money and influence, the poor, the outcasts. Invite those people. So what is he saying? He's asking the question, what are you doing with your money, with your influence, with your power? Remember, elsewhere Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In a nutshell, here's what's happening here. And it's repeated all through the Gospels. And if the air hasn't already been sucked out of the room at this point, what Jesus is saying next certainly will do it. Followers of Jesus... Those who have put their faith in Jesus, those who have made God the very center of their lives, and they live their lives around the presence and reality of God in their lives, of Jesus. They spend their resources and their wealth differently to a large degree on behalf of others. They, in fact, end up pouring themselves out for others They don't live for themselves only. They're actually living for other people, especially the others who are less fortunate than they are. One author put it this way, and I want you to remember this. Uh, uh, Jesus wants us to know we are to live my life for you, not your life for me. To live my life for you, that's what a follower of Jesus does. My life for you, not your life for me. Jesus is turning everything around. It's an upside-down relationship to life and money from what we hear and what we see and what we practice all around us every day. Most of us live your life for me. We would never probably admit that, but that's how we live. That's how we behave. Your life for me. What can you do for me? We live your life for me in our friendships, our partnerships. They don't last long if I'm not getting much out of it, right? Whether that's a business relationship, a marriage, a friendship. If it's not financially profitable, you're not a good network for me. I'm, I'm out. What can you do for me? That's how most of us live. But here Jesus is saying, followers of me live differently. My life for you. Others come first. This is how you live when you're my disciple, my follower. Why would we do that? Simple. Verse 14, he says, when you do, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Why would anybody want to live in a way that puts themselves after the well-being of others? Why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody want to live with that level of humility? What Jesus says in verse 14 is the reason. That's the motivation. It's a future promise. This life is not all there is. There's a future, a hope ahead of us. This life is just getting us ready for the next. If this life is all there is to live, then yeah, 
Grab all you can, use everyone you can, accumulate all you can, climb as high as you can, surround yourself with the people who can serve you and your purposes as best you can. Don't let anyone or anything hold you back. If this 80 years we get is all there is, then yeah, live it. Live it like that. Your life for me. But Jesus says, in light of that reality, that there's a future hope, that there's an eternal life, live my life for you. This great feast, Jesus is highlighting to these guests, this feast in his story to them at this meal, a feast that represents God's invitation to his feast, to his house, into relationship with him. He says the wealthy end up not even being attracted to it. The end of Luke chapter 14 identifies the excuses everyone's making that they can't come to the feast. I just bought an investment. I bought a house. I just got married. I can't come. Your, your life for mine is the relationship. That's the negotiation they're living under. They make excuses, verses 15 through 24. But you see what Jesus is doing here? He's telling these people, and he tells the host in particular, these people think the way to a full and good life, even those who think the way to God is through their success and their advancement and their earning and God's favor and deserving it, but they have it wrong. This is a feast. This is not a potluck. A potluck says you can bring something. We need you to bring something to make this a full meal. You need to contribute. But Jesus is saying at this feast, this is a feast. God is offering you a feast. Eternal life is his offer. There's nothing you can bring for salvation. It's a gift. Everything is already done. Everything's already finished. It's ready. You can't bring anything. All you can do is humbly accept the invitation that he extends to you. And by the way, while humility is so critical for the followers of Jesus, I don't want you to think that humility is the ticket that gets us to the feast of God. That's not the ticket to heaven. Humility is our response to Jesus and what he's already done because he's our ticket to heaven. He's our admission to heaven. He's our admission to eternal life, living forever in the kingdom of God. It's all about Jesus and his sacrifice for us that makes the feast ready and available. Our response to that is humility, is humble gratitude, a humble response that results always in generosity. A life where I'm giving of myself for others on behalf of others. My life for you. If you live in that world imaginarily just for a moment, can you imagine what kind of world we'd have? If people lived in this world, my life for you? Can you imagine what kind of country we'd have? Let's bring it down a little bit. Can you imagine the kind of neighborhood you'd have if you lived and started to live my life for you, for your neighbors? Can you imagine what kind of home life you've, you would have? Can you imagine how different your marriage would be, your family would be, your friendships would be if you lived like Jesus is saying, my life for you? If Jesus' followers embrace this truth and this way of living... Well, I know some of you know that already because it's what you're doing. I know some of you are. You've embraced a commitment to humbly follow God, love God, serve others, and you're looking for ways to be able to be living life for other people, 
as God is the center and becomes more and more the center of your life and seeing what he's done for you as gifts, gifts for your good, certainly, but also for the good of others and for the glory of God. What about you? What about you? Have you responded to the invitation, the invitation of Jesus in your life? He extends it always. He's extending it again today. He lived and he gave his life for you. That's how he lived his life. We pattern our lives after our Savior. And the choice is yours. It's always yours. You can make excuses or you can make a reservation. Maybe you can make a, a, a responsive decision. As you humbly give your life to Jesus, and let him transform your life around his lordship, his ruling, from the inside out. And then through you, through us, the world changes. It's all available because of what Jesus did. It's all available to make a restored and right relationship with God the Father and us possible, to give us new lives. It's what we bring to the front of our minds every time we get together at Crossroads Church. We get together every week and we remember by the Lord's, what is it? The Lord's Supper. You, you, you picked up a little cup with some juice in it and it also has a piece of bread on the top. This is essentially another meal we're taking together here. At least a remembrance of a meal. Another opportunity where Jesus uses this chance to ask you to listen to pattern your life after him, to make him central. Will you? Are you? Jesus, as you take your bread, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you, which is given for you. Remember me each time you eat it. So why don't you take and remember and believe? And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of remembrance, my blood that shed for you, my blood shed for you. Would you just let that sink in a minute as you're sitting at this table and hearing Jesus say these words to you? This is my blood for you. Have you ever said that to anybody? My blood for you? No, but Jesus did. And he did so out of his love for you. So take and drink and remember and believe. Would you pray with me? God, you are amazingly good and august and holy and righteous. And your love astounds us. And today as we gathered these small thoughts, these brief thoughts around this huge topic, around these important truths of who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do for us. My prayer is that you would bring to us remembrance, response, and, and humility to receive and be grateful for all that you've done and what you give. And I pray and praise you in the holy and righteous and matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kim.